churches that, that you would help him deliver your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you guys here this morning. I'm going to bring up a couple of slides here in a second. Uh, I may have used these illustrations before. I know I've used the first one before, but I want you to tell me what you see here on this uh, first slide. And if this isn't working, go ahead and bring up that first uh, slide. Okay. Uh, what do you see here in the picture? Y'all probably seen this optical illusion before. What, what's there in the picture? Let me ask one of the kids here. What do you What do you see in the picture, Ethan? A lady. Is it an older lady or a young lady? An older lady. Okay. So does anyone see the older lady in the picture? Do you see a young lady as well? Yeah? Okay. So do you see both pictures? So you see the optical illusion here. So if it's the old lady, this is her nose and there's her mouth and her chin and her eye. If it's the young lady, she's turned looking away from us. And that's her little nose right there and that's her chin and her neck, all right? Now, everyone's probably seen that one. How about this one? All right, what do you see there? Yes. Well, it's not an upside down face. This is a, is a not a very attractive lady, okay? So let's see here. All right, so you can see there, there's her nose and her mouth and her eyes. Now, I'm gonna have them turn that picture upside down. Turn it upside down for us. Go to the next one. That's the same picture. Okay, upside down. So again, it's one of these optical illusions. So go back. My, my clicker, I don't think it's working. There we go. There it is one, one way. You flip it upside down. There's the other way. Now I'll show you those to kind of give us a, uh, an illustration, if you will, of the transformation that's happening, that should be happening uh, in all of our relationships when we understand them in the light of the gospel. Paul, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. We're continuing to just go through the book of Ephesians verse by verse. And Paul gets to this section in the application portion of the book where he deals with relationships. Relationships in the home between husbands and wives. Relationships between children and, and, and parents. Relationships between slaves and masters. And what Paul is doing by taking us through this is showing us that all of these relationships are are, are different than what you originally thought. Matter of fact, they have much deeper meaning to them. It's kind of like this optical illusion. As a matter of fact, we may think of, of the whole uh, idea of, uh, of submission, which is the heading over this whole passage, as, as something pretty ugly, when in reality it's something beautiful. And all of our relationships, when they come under that understanding of mutual submission, are beautiful, beautiful things to behold. And they give us a picture of something much much greater. As I mentioned, we are in the household code right now. And go ahead and go past this slide and bring up the title slide, guys. We are in the household code section of Ephesians, which began in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, and is continuing and ends with this section of Scripture here. You remember chapter 21, of uh, verse 21 of chapter 5 was the heading that is over this whole section about mutual submission in reverence to Christ. Okay, and that in and of itself is an outworking of being filled with the Holy Spirit, which Paul had talked about, which is part of a walk or a lifestyle of wisdom that Paul has called all believers to exercise in Christ. Now, the passage we studied a few weeks ago uh, regarding wives and husbands is certainly politically incorrect in our day and age. Um, and it's that passages like that and like the one we're looking at today that leads some to accuse the Bible of being out of date. Um, archaic at best, or maybe barbaric at worst. We read in this passage today what Paul says, and we ask ourselves, what are we to do with a passage about slavery and masters? Is it irrelevant to us? Do we just ignore it? Do we dismiss it? Or do we approach the Scriptures recognizing that they were written within a window of history that is in, in many ways very, very different than the, the time that we live in, yet the truths recorded by God through his inspired apostles during that window of history are truths that are relevant for all cultures at all times. And of course, it's the latter that we need to do. We need to come at this scripture knowing that God has something to speak to us today, just as Deemer prayed. 
God has something to speak to us today through his word, even though this passage on slaves and masters may seem to us to be totally something from the past that has nothing to do with us today. Now, when it comes to the topic of slavery in the Bible, uh, a couple of things happen. First of all, people misrepresent what the scriptures actually say about slavery. And secondly, people misunderstand what ancient slavery in the Bible actually was. And so I want to spend probably the first third of this sermon just clearing that up a little bit and giving us a little bit of information. You may have someone who's come up to you, I know, I know Toby has, who's come up to you and said, the Bible promotes slavery. And that's what they'll say. Or the Bible, the Bible believes in slavery or tells us that slavery is okay. And so I want to give you a little bit of information this morning to help you combat that and show you that, no, the Bible doesn't promote slavery in any sort of way. And then when we're done with that, we'll come back to the text and look at the principles in the text because I think that we have to then translate the text about slaves and masters when we have a full understanding of what slavery was in Paul's day and take those principles and apply them to our cultural context today, which be, would be that we have those who are in a position of more power and authority, bosses, and there are those who are not in a power, position of power and authority, those who are the employees or workers, and our workforce is made up of that. And it's a very relevant topic today because what do you have? You have the Occupy Wall Street stuff going on where people are complaining about those higher-ups and, the, and they're saying the, the, the average man, the working man, isn't getting his fair share. And so, well, what does the gospel have to say about that? What does this passage have to say about how we work or how we lead, how we are bosses? And so, first, let's talk about this topic of slavery. I mentioned there's a misrepresentation where people say that the Bible actually promotes slavery, and there's a misunderstanding. First, let's talk about the the misinterp- misrepresentation where people promote, say that the Bible promotes or defends slavery. Well, it does no such thing. True, the Apostle Paul does not in this passage or any other passage call for an outright abolition of or eradication of slavery. And we'll talk about why here in a little bit. Yet any honest historian, any honest historian will tell you that it was Christians and biblical principles that led the way to the abolishment of slavery and the slave trade as we knew it in our recent history. It was Christianity, it was the gospel that eventually led to the undoing of the slave trade. Slavery was never promoted, is never promoted, or defended in the Bible. And those that claim that it is are misrepresenting scriptures. Now to make matters even more clear, the Bible does explicitly call slave trading a sin, which was actually what the slave, slavery that we think of in our minds is the African slave trade that was going on in the 1700s, 1800s, uh, even farther back, 1600s, and the African slave trade as Africans were enslaved and sold, kidnapped and sold into slavery. That's what we have in our mind when we think of slavery. And the Bible makes it very clear that such a thing is clearly a sin. 1 Timothy um, chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, lists a bunch of evil vices or people that practice evil things. And one of the things listed there are slave traders. And then we also have in Exodus 21, 16, which says this, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. There was a death penalty for slave trading in the Old Testament. Anyone caught buying or selling a person or anyone in possession of someone who had been kidnapped and sold into slavery was sentenced to death, according to Exodus 21.16. When we think of slavery, I think that our minds, like I just mentioned, go to that type of slavery. The, the kidnapping and being sold far away, which is evil and clearly condemned in the Scripture. And there's still that type of slavery going on today. Matter of fact, I heard this week as I was studying that there are estimates that the current uh, trafficking of children into two types of slavery. Number one, which is sexual slavery, and that's the young ladies that are bought and sold into the sex slave trade. And then the young boys are bought and sold or kidnapped and sold into uh, to be boy soldiers fighting wars in Africa. And so that type of slave trading is still going on today. And some estimate that the the amount of people being sold into slavery today is close, if not more, than what was happening way back at the peak of the African slave trade 
in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And then also there's a, a, a misunderstanding. It's very easy to project that African trade, slave trade onto the text here and believe that that's exactly what Paul's talking about. The slavery that was built upon the heinous African slave trade, which again is explicitly called sin in Scripture, is different, very different than the slavery of Paul's day, but it's also similar in some ways. So let's talk about it. Okay, Let's see how the slavery is similar, but let's also see how it's different. First of all, how is it similar to the slavery that we have in our mind when we think of slavery? Well, first of all, slaves were considered property. Even in Paul's day, the slaves were considered property. They were owned by people. Okay? Okay, the principles of Scripture tell us that we're not supposed to own our neighbor. We're supposed to love our neighbor. Okay? But the slave, slavery going on in Paul's day and the slavery that we're familiar with in our more recent history involved the owning of people and treating them as property. Slaves also in Paul's day had no legal right and were at the mercy of their masters. And so they prayed for God's grace that they would have a good master. Slaves were also often severely mistreated and abused. And slaves were considered the lowest rung in society. So those are some ways that it's similar when we think of slavery. But let me, let me bring up some differences to help us understand a little bit better the picture of what was going on when Paul wrote this. First of all, slavery was not primarily racial. All races were enslaved and had slaves. When we think of slavery, we primarily think of it as a racial thing. And therefore, it's much more emotionally charged. Well, in Paul's day, it was not primarily racial. Slaves often owned slaves in Paul's day. That's how ingrained it was into the fabric of society that slaves oftentimes had their own set of slaves who would have their own set of slaves. Matter of fact, the estimates are that one-third of the Roman citizens were slaves. That's 60 million people, give or take. 60 million people, one-third of the Roman population were slaves. So that would be like taking our congregation here and a third of you guys in here would be slaves. And that's what Paul and the church was facing in the congregation. As a matter of fact, actually, many, many slaves came to Christ. So the population in the church's gatherings was even more. A higher percentage of the people in the, uh, in the seats or if they had seats in the houses and wherever they were gathering, a high percentage of them were slaves. So 60 million people in the Roman world were slaves. That's more than six times the population of Georgia. A, number, a large number of the slaves were enslaved as a result of war or conquest. That was the normal way of doing war back then. And it was actually considered merciful. Not to slaughter all the people, but to enslave them. To bring them back as servants. Some slaves um, were sold into slavery by their, um, by their own family members. We've got a story of that in the scripture. Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his own family members. Some families who were hard up for money would sell their children into slavery, as awful as that sounds. Some slaves were abandoned infants. I've told you last week about how oftentimes infants were abandoned. The father had absolute right over what to do with a child, and he could either abandon it or take it into his family once it was born. And if he abandoned it, they would leave it to be exposed and set it out on the trash, trash heap. And sometimes slave traders would come and scoop up those children, raise them so they would have slaves to be able to sell later on. Sometimes slavery was a means of paying off debt. Matter of fact, that was a very common reason slavery was practiced in the Roman world. It was a means of paying off debt. The courts would oftentimes sentence someone to slavery because they owed a debt that they could not pay off. Or a person would sell themselves into slavery to pay off a debt. Or some slaves would sell themselves into slavery to have a better life, to get out of the poverty that they were in. It was better to be a slave of a rich man than to continue in poverty. Slavery was not usually for life in Paul's day. Matter of fact, most slaves, according to what I read this week, were freed by the time they were age 30. Most slaves were not enslaved beyond 30. Roman uh, owners didn't consider them very useful after 30. They wanted young men and young women. 
And so most slaves were set free by the time they were 30. Some slaves would actually purchase their own freedom or they would work off their debt and then be freed. Some were actually emancipated. There were times that the Roman government would emancipate slaves. And Jewish slaves, if you know your Old Testament, were supposed to be freed every seven years, in the year of Jubilee. In 1 Corinthians 7, we see Paul telling slaves that if they have the opportunity to be free, to, to avail themselves of that opportunity. And then he also tells, tells the, the Christians in verse 23 of chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians that you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So he tells people in the church, don't sell yourself into slavery. Don't do that. Because you were bought with a price by Jesus Christ. But slavery was a fact of life ingrained deep into the fabric of the social, political, and economic life of the Roman world. Now you may ask, well, why doesn't the Bible, I mean, all those things we mentioned still aren't good. Why doesn't the Bible call for an end to slavery? After all, we're not supposed to own people. And you're right. But the Bible is always more concerned with the inward heart change of God's people that leads to outward behavioral change that eventually, like salt and light, leads to social change, political change, and so on. God always starts with the hearts of his people in the church. The gospel message of Jesus Christ sets forth principles and realities that, although not directly concerned with social political structures of the day, eventually introduce fissures into the very foundation of unjust, cruel, and repressive systems so that they can eventually come tumbling down. Because slavery wasn't the only unjust thing in the Roman world. The, 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 the system of government was unjust. But Paul nowhere also calls for us to rebel against the government. Instead, what does he tell the people? Paul and Peter say, submit to the emperor. Submit to the government. You see, Paul understood that the gospel makes changes within people and within his called out ones, the church. And then the church becomes a change agent for the culture. One commentator wrote this, Christianity did not rudely assault the forms of social life or seek to force even a justifiable revolution by external appliances. Such an enterprise would have quenched the infant religion in blood. The gospel achieved a nobler feat. It did not stand by in disdain and refuse to speak to the slave until he gained his freedom and the shackles fell from his arms. No, but it went down into his degradation, took him by the hand, uttered words of kindness in his ear, and gave him a liberty which fetters could not abridge and tyranny could not suppress. That's what Paul was concerned with. A much greater freedom, the freedom that comes through the gospel. And it would have been impossible for Paul to call for the eradication of slavery just outright. It was so ingrained in the culture, it had to change over time. So instead of abolishing slavery, the gospel changes people. And those people over time changed society and eradicated slavery through the gospel. And there's application for us here because Christians, we've never been called to go in and change society through any other means than the gospel. We must be careful with our political actions and our political alignments. And there may be things you consider to be unjust and you feel that, yes, the Bible doesn't line up with this. It can be a thousand different things. It could be the, the, the way that uh, corporations work. It could be environmental issues, whatever it might be. Christians, our call is to be transformed by the gospel and to live the gospel in such a way that society changes when they see the way we behave in the light of the change that Christ has done in our life. The early church was filled with slaves, partially because the Christian message was so revolutionary to these slaves. Paul again speaks directly to slaves. Remember I told you, Paul spoke directly to the wives. That was revolutionary, that he's going to speak directly to the wives. He, in Paul's day, you speak to the husband and say, husbands, make your wives obey. But he speaks directly to the wives, and then he speaks directly to children. That was revolutionary, and now he speaks directly to slaves, and that is a revolutionary concept. This was unheard of. The way slaves are treated and spoken of in the Bible with such a positive light is unseen in any other ancient literature. This was radical to the core. 
The book of Philemon, for example, is written to a, a slave owner named Philemon about his slave Onesimus, who had, who had apparently run away but then had become a Christian, and Paul's sending him back. And what does Paul tell Philemon? He says this, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. And this radical idea of calling a slave your brother was totally foreign to anything that was going on in Paul's day. We don't understand how radical and revolutionary this is. The Bible gives value and humanity and familial status to slaves that most in the ancient world would have considered scandalous. Aristotle, this was what he called slaves, he said slaves were irrational tools. They were just tools like on your tool belt, except they had the ability to be rational. The Bible calls slaves humans created in the image of God with value and glory. What would you expect from a book that is all about the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who according to Philippians 2, came as a slave and who himself came, said that he came to serve and not to be served, who put on a slave's attire and in John 13 did a slave's work. The gospel message of Jesus Christ brings a freedom that no shackles can hinder and it kills the self-righteous, sinful superiority bound up in the hearts of men that feeds into slavery. The gospel, the gospel caused slavery to implode because it declares that before God we are all equal. Number one, we're equally created in the image of God. Number two, we're equally depraved sinners who have marred the image of God. And number three, if we are in Christ, then we have been equally redeemed and saved by his grace and equally are being restored to the image of our creator. The gospel, therefore, shatters self-righteousness, brings humility and equality, and in doing so, plants seeds of God-glorifying justice in society. The gospel proclaims that all men are also born slaves, slaves to sin, that in Christ, and that in Christ we have been set free from that slavery. Therefore, there is now neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither female nor male. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now those in him are joyfully his bondservants. Or slaves of righteousness is what Paul calls us. There has been a transfer of ownership. And it has been done in such a way that we are more than just bondservants and slaves of our King Jesus. We are sons and heirs to the kingdom of God. And so, that's what we see in this text. Equality, mutual submission, regardless of one's station in life, for all those who are in Christ. But how do we apply it to our culture today? So I want us to take the principles we're about to get into here about bondservants and about um, uh, masters and apply it to what our culture, what we're faced with in our culture, and that is that some are employers... And bosses, others are employees and workers. And we can take these truths and apply them to our jobs. And even for those who aren't employed necessarily or paid, this text speaks to how we work. So moms, you're not paid to do the most difficult job on the planet. You don't get a dime for it. Yet, you can look at this text and say, how do these principles of good work apply to me? Children. You are under the authority of your parents. You are to obey them and you are to work when they ask you to work and do the things they ask you to do. How can I take this text and apply it to me should be your question. Volunteers in the church, church workers, you name it. There's thousands of ways we can apply this text to working and oversight or being a leader or boss. So let's read the text real quick here. As I mentioned before, there's been a transfer of ownership. Verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. Now, this is a revision to the, uh, to the ESV. If, if you have an ESV Bible, yours may say, 
slaves, obey your earthly masters. And then when you get to verse 6, it says that we are servants of Christ. I'm glad they went back and made a recent revision to the text because those are the exact same words. When he says you are uh, slaves, obey your earthly masters, and you are servants of Jesus Christ, servants and slaves is the exact same word. And I think if we translate them as different words and try to soften the text a little bit, we lose what Paul's trying to say here. He's saying there has been a transfer of ownership. Slaves, bond servants. Obey your earthly masters because you are a slave of Jesus Christ. There has been a transfer of ownership. And he is the one we are now working for. Ephesians 6, 5 again. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. As you would Christ, your obedience is toward Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that, here it is, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. So we have new bosses. We have a new king. We have a new master, and it's Jesus Christ. And therefore, slaves or workers are told that your work, the work that we do is unto Jesus. It's to him because he is ultimately our master. And we are to do it, according to the text here, with fear and trembling. That phrase, fear and trembling, should remind us of chapter 5, verse 21. Because in chapter 5, 21, he says that we should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the, remember, that's the, that's the topic sentence for this whole passage of Scripture here. And reverence for Christ means fear of Christ. It was a phrase usually reserved for fear of the Lord. And Paul takes it and says, the fear of Christ is how we should be submitting to one another. So we submit out of fear, we, we obey with fear and trembling. And the fear and trembling here, although honor and respect should be given to our bosses, our earthly masters... Ultimately here, the respect and the awe and the fear that God is wanting us to have is aimed primarily at Jesus. And masters and bosses, according to this text, are called to do the same. They are to be bosses with fear and trembling. And not to abuse their position of authority because they too have a master, Jesus Christ. So let's get more specific about bondservants and workers. We'll start with workers first. And there's a few things we can draw out from this text. So let's see if I can get my slides going. A Christ-revering worker works with a heart of integrity. A Christ-revering worker works with a heart of integrity. So if you have a job and you are a worker, you do things. Or if you're a student and you are working at your classwork. Or if you're a child and you have chores to do. Or if you're a wife and mother and you have housework to do. A Christ-revering worker is one who works with a heart of integrity. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. I use the word integrity here because this word sincere in the Greek means singleness of heart or wholeheartedness. A person who works in such a way is a person who is not double-minded, but instead is dedicated to his task and can be counted on to get it done. He doesn't say one thing and do another. A worker who has integrity is a person who doesn't practice doublespeak. Okay, maybe you guys have been like that, or are like that, or you know someone like that, who says one thing to one person and another thing to another person. A worker who has integrity has pure motives. A person who has integrity is not hypocritical. He doesn't cut corners. He's not the guy in the office that's just smoozing everybody. Just trying to get along with everybody. He's going to do his work and do it well. He does what he's paid to do. When I was in college in North Carolina, I was in college in Texas, but in, in the summers I went to North Carolina to work a job. And my, my uncle had hired me to work for the High Point City School Systems. And... Um, there were several of us college kids, we were on different crews, and we were maintenance crews, and my primary job was to plant flowers. Okay, it's not exciting, but we would go around to the different schools, and we would plant flowers and keep the flower beds looking good. 
But the crazy thing was, there really wasn't enough work for us to do. Um, but still, we were being paid. We were getting taxpayer money. But my boss, every morning, would tell us, um, you know what, you guys need to go to this school first, but there's going to be lots of traffic on the way. So you need to make sure there's a place where you can stop and wait out the traffic and get there by about, I don't know, 10.30 or 11. And he had specific places where he wanted us to go park the truck and hide out so no one could see the High Point City schools on the side of our truck just sitting on the side of the road. And, and I remember it, was, it bugged me so much, but I never really did anything about it to my own shame. I never confronted my boss, but this was the way it went all the time. He would come, we got like four plants planted and, and there's like only a little bit more to go and he'd come up because he knew he didn't have any more work for us to do in the day and he'd say, boy, it's getting hot out here. I don't want you guys to get a heat stroke. You need to go inside in the air conditioning. The gym over there, there's some basketballs and stuff in there. Why don't y'all go in there and just hang out a little bit for the next couple of hours? And this went on, on and on and on. And that's horrible. A horrible way of doing work. It's not integrity at all. A person who works with integrity is someone that a boss can totally trust. And the next thing flows out of this sincere heart and this wholehearted disposition. A Christ-revering worker works with an ethic of honesty. It says in verse 6, Not by the way of eye service or as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Eye service. The, the picture here is that you work when someone's looking at you. But you don't when someone's not looking at you. Okay? Have you ever had that happen? Or maybe you've had that experience personally. It's really hard to get work done when nobody's actually wor- watching you. Especially in this day and age, right? You've got Facebook up. And you're reading all the different Facebook um, uh, status updates. And, oh, okay. And then your boss works by and you bring the spreadsheet back up. That's, that's the kind of the culture we live in today. We're trained to be um, people who please the eye. People who give eye service. I think, I think that, that, that pastors in particular are in danger here. If you have a position where you don't have direct oversight, and this is one of the reasons I believe in the multiplicity of elders in a church, you don't have direct oversight, someone over you, paying attention to you, if you're in a position like that in any workplace, then, then you, have, may, you will have a temptation to not work hard. That temptation will always be there. And I think pastors, especially in a more senior pastor model where the pastor is the guy, pastors have a tendency to, well, just not do as much work as they actually can do and just sort of give eye service. I heard it said once, if your pastor is a really good golf player, you probably should pay attention more to what he's doing during the week. Okay, am I good at golf? I really stink, all right? But still, I'm susceptible to the temptation just like everyone else. And Paul says here, don't work with eye service. Children, have you ever been goofing off and you know you're supposed to be doing something, maybe homework or a chore, and then mom walks by and all of a sudden you start doing it and act like you're doing it? That's eye service. Eye service is deceitful. It's trickery. It's stealing. The phrase people pleasers is attached to this phrase eye service, meaning that the type, a type of worker... Um, who just does whatever he wants to do just to make the boss happy. He's going to do, the, do whatever he can, just the minimum, to make the boss happy. The NIV translates this this way, and I like it. He says, it says, Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you. We are to work for the one whose eye is always on us. We are to work for the one who is our true boss. There is no mundane task in God's economy that we can just slack off on or ignore. If we've been entrusted with a task, then it is to be done, to be done well. Christ deserves our best work. And the presence of the Spirit in us makes that possible. Again, this is all under the heading of being filled with the Spirit, remember? Which again cannot happen apart from being saturated with the Word and prayer. What else do we see here? A Christ-revering worker also works with an attitude of charity. Rendering service, it says in verse 7, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. A good will here. This could be translated cheerfully or happily. It also means 
eagerness to do lovingly good to another. That's why I chose the word charity. It involves the inner man. It's not about behavior. It's about the heart. Again, Paul doesn't just get us, let us off the hook with behavior modification. Okay, I'll stop, I'll stop looking at Facebook. I'll stop doing this and just change my behavior. Paul's concerned about the heart. Therefore, this is a gospel issue. If Jesus hasn't taken hold of your heart, you can't do these things. And so, there's a heart condition that should exist if someone truly is a worker who reveres Christ. It means that we genuinely do it with a good attitude toward our task and toward others. I mean, parents, how many times have you had your children, you've asked them to do something, and they do it, but they do it with what? A scowl. I think we do the same thing in our workplaces. We do it with an attitude that's not consistent with the gospel. Bad bosses or evil masters do not excuse our call to work with a good will. Why? Because we're not ultimately working for them. We are working for Christ and in Christ. And in working with a happy heart and a good will toward others, we proclaim the gospel. We proclaim that our happiness, our joy is not bound up in our circumstances, in our salary, in our promotion, in our bosses, in our schedules or anything. 1 Peter 2.18 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. I know some of you in here have unjust bosses. For this is a gracious thing, Peter goes on to say, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When we handle the difficult boss or the unattractive task that we've been given in a way that is different from the rest of the world or the rest of the employees, we are proclaiming something. We are proclaiming that we are in Christ, and in Christ we no longer operate the way the world operates. And our joy isn't bound up in what the world's joy is bound up in. And we are proclaiming that, that, that we work for a perfect boss, Jesus Christ, who is sovereign over all, and who with a simple word could take us out of our job or change our boss, change our salary, but we don't complain and fuss about those things because we trust in a sovereign God who has our good in mind and his glory. So we do everything we do, including submitting to a jerk of a boss or doing a burdensome task. We do it all for Christ. Titus 2.9 says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Now listen to this. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Which means that in behaving in such a way, in a submissive way, we make the teachings of Christ very attractive. How do you make the gospel attractive in your workplace? Well, it happens uh, in large part due to the way how you react to your horrible boss and your difficult work circumstances. If we react to those in a Christ-revering way, we make the gospel attractive. And if we don't, well, we're just falling into the same pattern the rest of the world's in. Finally, a Christ-revering worker works with a gaze toward eternity. A Christ-revering worker works with a gaze toward eternity. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. There is no partiality with God. He requires faithfulness from all his children, and he will reward it in eternity correspondingly, accordingly. I'm convinced there will be some who are considered lowly workers in society or lowly workers in the church that will have high and exalted places in heaven, and there will be pastors that will be doing janitorial work in heaven. 
Because it's not about your position now on this earth. It's about your faithfulness with what God has given you here. Whether you are a boss or you are the most mistreated employee in the world. Whatever good anyone does, God is keeping track. There is a reckoning. No, we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved to do good works. We are His workmanship created to do good works. Doing good works doesn't just mean the big things. Feeding the poor, helping widows, praying for orphans. That's all good, and most certainly those are good works that we are called to do. But the good anyone does that Paul speaks of here, the good anyone does that God also rewards involves the mundane tasks of life. God rewards how you handle the simple things of life. It's not just about you going out and giving money to an orphanage or something. If you're giving money to an orphanage or helping the poor, but in your workplace, you're a jerk. Both things are in God's sight, and this doesn't make up for this. 99% of your life is over here. And that's what God rewards according to this text. It's how you handle the mundane, everyday tasks that you've been given. And I said this goes beyond just workers that are getting paid. Children, the way you handle your tasks. Dads, the way you handle your tasks. Moms, the way you handle your tasks. Whatever it might be. Paul speaks of God rewarding even the most mundane aspects of our lives. We keep our gaze on eternity knowing that all of our deeds, including the secret ones, will be exposed and rewarded or burnt up according to 1 Corinthians 3.13. This text says this. It says, Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Let's let these Warnings drive us to the cross and plead for Christ's mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. To push us to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Facebook, when you're supposed to be working, is a deed of the flesh. Fudging a bit on a reimbursement report, just a little bit, just a little bit extra mileage, is a deed of the flesh. Gossip about the unreasonable boss at the water cooler is a deed of the flesh. But what about bosses? We've talked about workers. So let's take the last few minutes here to talk about bosses. Because some of you in here are over other employees. You have a position where you are over people. And this is a little bit different from your notes. I thought I made the changes, but apparently I messed up when I printed this morning. I put a little bit extra words in this one. But here's what I wanted to say. A Christ-revering boss leads by example and does not view his position as an excuse to exercise power over others, but as an opportunity to please Christ. A Christ-revering boss leads by example. Verse 9. Masters, what does it say? Do the same. Masters, do the same. Referring to all the principles he's just talked about. Integrity, honesty, charity, with reverence to Christ. Lead by example. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. He recognizes, the boss recognizes there is a higher boss to whom he answers. Just as the worker works for Christ, so do the boss leads or manages or delegates or guides his workers for Christ. He's being a boss for the sake of his boss. Therefore, threatening has no place. This was a pretty radical thing Paul was telling masters because slaves had no rights. So masters had the freedom to threaten them as much as they wanted to. But Paul says, do not threat. Threats are pretty effective, aren't they? Some of you guys serve in workplaces where you're threatened. Your boss says, if this doesn't change, this is going to happen. Or whatever, or whatever. I, I do chaplaincy, for, do corporate chaplaincy. And sometimes when I go into these different, I have eight different places I go visit during the week and just walk through and see how people are doing, how the work's going and everything. And sometimes I can tell when the boss has had what they call a come-to-Jesus meeting, where he gets them into the, the, the room. And you know what? 
into the boardroom and lays out threats. You know what? I notice those people aren't working with joy. They're not working with any sort of happiness. They're working totally out of fear. Fear of what's going to happen if I don't sell more of this this month. Or if I don't make this happen. But a boss that reveres Christ doesn't lay down threats. He will not manipulate those under him. He will not belittle those under him. He will not demean them or cause them to live on the edge of fear. So masters and bosses are to operate with integrity, honesty, charity, without threats, because they too have a boss and there is no partiality with Jesus. And I love that. There is no partiality with him. What a way to end this text because Paul reminds us that in Christ we are all on the same footing. There is no partiality because if you are a Christian, you are in Christ. His righteousness has been counted to you, imputed to you, and your sin has been atoned for and cast into the depths of the sea. And when God sees his children, his bondservants, he sees Christ, the perfect one who had the perfect work ethic. You know, Jesus worked a job. I know we think of Jesus as ministry that we have in the Gospels, but Jesus worked as a carpenter until he was 30. And I guarantee you, he didn't cut corners. He didn't substitute, substitute cheap wood for the good wood when the client was expecting the good stuff, just so he could make a little money. Jesus had the perfect work ethic, and our only hope is to believe the gospel and believe that Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to us. And that therefore we now, too, can have a work ethic that reflects all these principles we've talked about this morning. That per- perfect work ethic has been imputed to us and there is no partiality with Christ. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, And we were all made to drink of one spirit. Colossians 3.11 says, Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So the gospel changes everything. It changes husband-wife relationships. And it pictures a much glorious truth. The husband-wife relationship, once it's been changed by the gospel, we understand what it actually represents. It changes child-parent relationships. And it changes bosses and workers and their relationships. Because we are brothers in Christ. The old Christmas hymn, O Holy Night, in its last verse says this. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains he shall break for the slave is our brother. And this hymn was written in the mid-1800s. And in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. With all our hearts we praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Then ever, ever praise we. His power and glory evermore proclaim. His power and glory evermore proclaim. The gospel changes everything. Just like the pictures we showed at the beginning. It flips all of our relationships on their head. And changes everything the world says. This is the way things should work. And puts it in perspective to where we can see the beauty of why God has ordered things in such a way. Let's bow our heads And let's pray. Bow our heads and pray. There are some of you in here that have tyrants that you are working for. And you need the gospel to grant you the grace, Jesus to grant you the grace through his gospel to work in such a way that you adorn the gospel. You make it attractive. There are some of you in here, some of us in here that have jobs to do. And we are so overcome with temptation to slack off, to spend our time doing other things. We need the gospel. We need Jesus to change the way we do our jobs. And there are some in here who are bosses over people, who have authority, who have the opportunity to exercise power. And our prayer needs to be that you won't use that power 
use that position just to be powerful over people, but you use it to proclaim the glory of Christ. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now. We ask, Lord, that you be with us in this closing time. As we sing some songs, we respond with the bringing of our tithes and offerings and prayer requests. And Lord, may this time be totally for you. And Lord, I know that this text is impossible for us to keep. It's impossible for us to be the type of workers that that Paul is calling for us to be. And we're not even slaves. And so we have to come running to the cross. So that's what we do right now. Jesus, do a work in us. Convict us of our sin, of our bad work ethic. Convict us of our sin when we haven't been treating our employees well. Convict us of the ways that we have not glorified you in the workforce. And help us, God, by the power of Jesus Christ alone to change, to glorify you, to adorn the gospel with the way we do our jobs. And God, we also pray, we do pray, that our society would change. Well, Lord, we don't have to go occupy any city. We just have to get on our knees and beg that the gospel take root in Wall Street and in Main Street. And that the gospel would take root in the oppressive government systems around this world. And that the slave trade that's still going on today would come to a collapsing end. We pray for all those. We have brothers and sisters today that are literally slaves. We pray for them today. The Christians in Sudan are routinely being kidnapped and sold into sex slavery. Oh God, let us not forget our brothers and sisters who are right now being terribly oppressed around the world. So as we close this time, let us give you all the glory as we sing forever. It's all about you. Forever you are faithful. You are faithful to that slave in the sedan who doesn't know if she can make it through this day. And you're faithful to us here who have bosses who act like jerks. And you're faithful to us who struggle so much with wasting our time and being such fools in the workplace. Forever you are faithful. You're our only hope, Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Amen.